0: Well, good morning to you, all right? Good, good. on, don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles? Welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new, I'm Steve, one of the pastors here. We're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians. That should be uh, in the Bible in front of you there in the pew. If you don't have one, go ahead and grab that. Take it with you today. That is our gift to you. Uh, you know, every week when we gather here together, one of the things that Jared leads us in is centering our hearts and minds on the truth of Jesus and the truth of what he has done for us and the truth of who we are. And you heard that in the two songs that we just sang a minute ago, that Jesus is better, that has that refrain through it that says, make my heart believe. Have you ever felt that before? Have you ever felt that tension that you live in a place where there are things that you know to be true, but man, it doesn't feel like they make it down into your heart sometimes, doesn't it? And then what Jared did is we followed up with Jesus is better with who you say I am. And what we did when we sang that is we sang the truths about ourselves as God has spoken them to us, right? So what we find when we sing songs like that and uh, what we find when we come to the scriptures is that we're all complicated people. You are here today because you are a complicated person. Welcome to Citadel Square. You are in conflict. You have experiences in your life and in your heart where you feel tension. And what Paul is going to show us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is not so much a personal tension. Paul showed that to us last week if you remember what Addison taught to us. If you'll just look there in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, back in the beginning part of the chapter, he says... By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, slander and praise, we're treated as impostors and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many riches, having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul is an individual who's in a life of conflict. Paul is an individual who lives with tension between what's happening in his life, who he believes God to be, and who he believes himself to be. And all of us, no matter what our background is, no matter what our family of origin is, no matter where we are in our careers, we all live with a sense of conflict and tension and pressure and any other synonym that you would like to use for illustrating that point. We all have those. And what Paul is going to do because of his own personal experience in the beginning part of this chapter is now speak to a church that is also conflicted. He's going to speak to a church that that feels that tension. And all throughout the book of 2 Corinthians, we've been dealing with that tension. And Paul has been pouring out his heart for this church to address this particular tension in their midst. Paul has been critiqued. Paul has been questioned. Paul has probably been verbally assaulted by false teachers who show up and want more influence and more authority in the church than is warranted by the message they preach. And Paul has written severe letters to discipline individuals in the church who have tried to draw the church away from the one true gospel. And the thing that we've been seeing all throughout this book is that to depart from Paul is to depart from the apostolic message is to depart from God himself. So Paul, experiencing the consequences as our example of living for Christ in this world and facing the conflict in his own spirit, in his own experiences of having to be both sorrowful and rejoicing, is now going to turn and talk to this church about what this church is facing. We said when we started this series that 2 Corinthians is a book written to a people in a city uh, that had massive upward mobility opportunity. And all through First and Second Corinthians, you face Paul and find Paul counseling this church not to live according to the world's metrics, these metrics of mankind, but to live according to the metrics of grace, to live as if they have been people who've been reconciled to God. And what Paul is going to do now as he closes the last couple sections here of 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is highlight a danger. And he's going to show us that he understands the conflict we're in. He understands deeply the conflict and war that is in your soul this morning about who God is, about who you are, about who you ought to be, And then he's going to apply it corporately to the church and say the church has to deal with that too. What do you think? Do you think churches have a problem with false teaching and true teaching? What do you think? Can that ever happen in a church? If you've ever read the book of 3 John, little bitty book right at the end of your Bible, really, really short. 1 John, second and third John all work together. In 3 John, an unbeliever has taken over the church. And has kicked people out and has now created a church system in which the apostolic teaching is uh, refused, in which missionaries who take the gospel message out are not welcomed into the church, in which he who loves to be first has now taken authority in the church, and the church has now been compromised at the level of its leadership, all because the gospel is not protected. And Paul recognizes that here in this passage. So, this is a very sobering passage. And I'm going to show you by the end how it applies to us corporately, to the church at large. But it also applies to you individually. In fact, you this week will find some of the greatest tension in your life over the things that Paul is going to teach us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You with me? Let's pray. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word, we pray that you would open our eyes to see some things about you and ourselves that perhaps we haven't considered before. Would the truth of God's word penetrate into the areas of our heart where we need to hear it, where we are extraordinarily discouraged or despairing or disbelieving the things that are spoken in this book? Father, would you wash us as a congregation in the word that we may be a people that, um, whose mouths and meditations and actions are pleasing in your sight? So God, teach us. Illumine your word for us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to start here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And then we're going to move all the way to the beginning there of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Y'all with me so far? You okay? You are tracking? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. We have spoken freely to you. Has Paul pulled any punches in this book? What do you think? Paul, all through this book, has proved his apostolic credentials by the sincerity of his conscience and the clarity of his word. He said earlier in this book, we're not writing to you anything other than what you understand, which means I'm not, I don't have an ulterior motive when I speak to you. I don't have some secret plan when I teach to you and when I write to you. Rather, my motives are, remember what he said, heliocrine, sun-tested. I am clear and clean before God in my conscience and when I speak to you. And here when Paul begins, I want you to see that what the terminology Paul is going to use is incredibly emotional terminology, He's been building to this emotional intensity all throughout the book. And literally, the Greek says, our mouths are wide open to you. There's nothing that I have hidden when I have spoken to you, church. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Not only have I spoken to you freely, but my heart is yours. My heart is wide open toward you. One of the things we've said through the course of this book is that Paul uh, as he writes to these Corinthians, is baring his chest. And he's becoming emotionally vulnerable to these people to show them how much he cares about them, how he's fought for them, how he's written to them and written severe letters. And letters that you'll see later on, he'll talk about the severe letter next week in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 about how much his heart was in that. How it pained him to write it because he was concerned about what was happening in this church. He's concerned that these people would be deceived and drawn away from the faithfulness to Paul's apostolic message as received from Jesus Christ that you can be reconciled to God. And that mattered to Paul. Paul is not just some intellectual teacher listing facts about God and doctrinal truths. But he's a pastor. He cares for the people that he writes to. He's invested in their spiritual well-being. If any of you have ever been in the context of a conversation with somebody that you love deeply, you will feel what Paul feels here. Where you've had to address some things that are dangerous to them in their life, then you will feel what Paul feels here. Paul begins with this intensity of emotion because this church matters so much to me and they are in a place of great spiritual danger. And they may not think it, but Paul feels it. And Paul sees it and Paul knows the conflict that they are in and the dangerous situation that they are in. Our heart is wide open to you. Verse 12, you're not restricted by us. As in there's been nothing that I've done to create distance in our relationship. Paul has this massive care and concern for these people and has only been intentional to move toward them. And though he's been rebuked publicly in the church, he's been criticized by these false apostles, he continues to press into the relationship. It's not just that these beliefs matter to Paul, but the people matter to Paul. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. Your own affections are narrow to us. Paul is like, it's like a picture of unrequited love. I so care about these people. They so matter to me. They're in such a precarious position. But at the same time, there's not an equality of affection coming back. Rather, this church has been deceived to now believe not what Paul has said, but to believe now these more impressive, rhetorically influential, false teachers who come into their midst and say, Paul's not that impressive. Paul's not that great of a guy. Paul doesn't do what he says. paul he, They've continued to heap insults upon Paul, but that doesn't decrease Paul's love for these people. He's still invested in them. You're restricted in your own infections in return Now, here's the appeal. This is vulnerable, isn't it? Imagine saying to someone, I love you so much, I just wish that you would return that love. Aren't you vulnerable when you say that? Aren't you in a place where all of a sudden my heart is exposed where anything could happen and I could be hurt in this relationship. And Paul says, no, because I have been faithful to Christ, faithful to his message, in return, I'm asking something of you. And what he asks of them is not romantic affection coming back, but look at what he says in the remainder, in the second part of the verse. In return, I speak as to children. Now, Paul's not talking about immaturity, though I think you could, you could make a case for the Corinthian church being immature. But Paul is appealing to a certain kind of relationship, isn't he? When I say, hey, when I talk to my kids, hey, baby girl, I'm your dad and I love you. Paul is taking the same approach as he talks to this church. I speak as to my spiritual children, In return, my kids, my my spiritual offspring, those who I brought the gospel to, those who believe the gospel message, those who in the last day will boast in me as I boast in you, our relationship is like you're my spiritual kids. And for Paul to pour out to his kids, it's right and good for parents to have a love, a sacrificial love for their kids. Paul is asking for there to be an appropriate reciprocal love relationship back from his kids. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. So do you feel the emotion of Paul's words? Do you feel how invested he is in the relationship? Do you feel how much they matter to him? And before Paul gets into the exhortation, and before Paul gets into, here are the problems that are in the church that need to be addressed. And here are the, the lies that you are not believing. Paul begins his appeal from a place of great investment and love. Now, I think that's instructive for us, isn't it? You know, a lot of us, when we have to have hard conversations, we don't start where Paul starts. What do we start with? The list. Let me give you 16 reasons why you're at of step. Number one, do you love me? Don't worry about that. That'll come later. See, Paul doesn't, Paul has already given you his example in the first part of the chapter, right? Sorrowful, joyful, life, death, facing conflict. That's been all through this book. And now Paul comes to the point where he's about to exhort this church to live in spiritual purity. And the thing that you know before Paul starts is the fact that he goes overboard to let them know how much he loves them. Don't you want to hear that? Don't you want to hear that the person who is about to rebuke you loves you deeply? No? You just want it straight and clean? Are you, out, are you with me? Are you out there? You want them, I'm pretty sure, you want to know they love you, don't you? Has, any, has there been anything that Paul has done? This is his point. Has there anything that, that Paul has done that causes them to question his love for them? He's gone to the infigree. He's brought the, the gospel to them. He's suffered for them. He's written to them. He's been publicly rebuked, and he's still come back into the relationship. So before, just don't miss this, before he gets into the exhortation, it's Paul's emotional appeal. You matter to me. I love you. We should have a better relationship right now than we do, and you are in spiritual danger. You with me so far? Here's his exhortation, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Who grew up on a farm? Did you grew up on a farm? I don't know anything about plowing anything. But what Paul uses is a metaphor from the Old Testament. Did nobody grow up on a farm? One, two, three. So you guys can lead, a, you'll be leading a clinic afterwards on yoking animals. Y'all get together, figure that out, make that happen. Paul's using an Old Testament agricultural example to apply to a New Testament church reality. It's a word here unequally yoked that Paul uses only one time in all of the Bible. And the idea is that you can't plow. It's an Old Testament um, idea. You can't plow with two different animals. You can't use a mule and an ox. Imagine having, have you ever done a three-legged race? Anybody ever done that? Remember those growing up? Yeah, see, we who grew up in church and did VBSs, you remember all the three-legged races we did. Uh, You can't do a three-legged race with people who aren't your size. You can't tie your leg to the leg of a four-year-old and expect to get anything done. You can't. You can't go anywhere. You're just going to run in circles. And what Paul does to begin this exhortation of this church is to paint a picture of two animals who are out of step. Two animals who don't fit together. You can't yoke two different animals. You can't ox and horse and mule and ox. You can't do it with two different animals. And Paul's about to give you a flurry of rhetorical questions that illustrate this very same idea. Now, if you've heard this verse before, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, when is it usually used? It's always used in the context of marriage, is it? Now, that's true. It's not true here, but it's a good principle in general. Marry in the Lord. But Paul's not talking about marriage, is he? What's he talking about? He's talking about false teachers in the church. So, is it true that you need to marry in the Lord? Yeah, because if you tie your leg to somebody who's going the different direction, you're gonna get nothing done in your marriage, amen? Amen. But Paul is even more concerned about that, in the context of the church, Christ's true bride, that these individuals in the Corinthian church would not be unequally yoked together. Now, watch these rhetorical questions. He's going to highlight this disparity by a variety of rhetorical questions that are, you know what Venn diagrams are? You ever see those? It's like uh, men, women, and men and women who are both economists, right? They, they touch in a spot. Paul is going to have this Venn diagram and the circles are never going to touch. And that's his point. It's a rhetorical device that Paul makes sure that you know these categories are not, uh, are, uh, I'm sorry, these categories are mutually exclusive. That's why you can't be yoked unequally to unbelievers. Four, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Do you want to go into into business with somebody who doesn't share your values and your ethics? What do you think? No. The partnership word means two people who are united for a common purpose and a common direction. It doesn't work like that. It's like uh, two people driving a car. How long can two people drive in a car and hold the steering wheel? For a little bit, but not very long. Why? Because somebody's gonna have to drive and somebody's gonna have to make a decision about whether or not we're going left and we're going right. If you got two people gripping the steering wheel, it's not gonna work. So that's Paul's point. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Those who follow the commands and the truths of God according to the righteous standards of God do not fit with those who ignore the law and don't view it as applicable, don't view it as certain, don't view it as important. They're two mutually distinct categories. Number two, what fellowship has light with darkness? So that's easy. Every time it's dark in the sanctuary and we turn the lights on, the the dark doesn't stay, the light stays, right? You can't have light and dark in the same thing. And you go, ah, dimmer switches, Steve. That's not the point. You can't have light and dark. Now look at the leaders of these respectful, respective kingdoms. Believers, unbelievers, righteous, lawlessness, light, Dark, what accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is an Old Testament term for Satan. What do you think? Do Christ and Satan get together on some stuff and go, what do you think? You know what the word accord, the word accord here in this passage right here, it's where we get, it's the root word in the Greek of where we get the term symphony. How does a symphony sound? Beautiful. Highs, lows, swells, uh, whatever the opposite of swells are underswells. Somebody look that up. They don't sing together. It doesn't work together. Christ and Bilal, they have different purposes. That's the point. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now, this has to do with the, because of the promises of God for his people believers receive something from God that unbelievers have no portion in. They have no part in. This word portion is used. I want you to see this. Keep your finger in 2 Corinthians and turn over to Acts chapter 8. This word is used in a very interesting uh, moment. Acts chapter 8. And take a look. uh, Acts chapter 8 is the story of Saul ravaging the church and a guy named Simon the sorcerer who is viewed in his culture and time as being profoundly impressive as impressing all sorts of people with his magic and so much so that the people believe that he is the very expression of the power of God. But here comes the gospel message. And the gospel message begins to take root in this city. If you look at second I'm sorry Acts chapter 8 Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now, how do you think this is going to go? Can I give you my 9995 to be able to get the certification online to allow me to lay hands on people and give them the gift of the Holy Spirit? What certification do I need to put on my resume so that I can be the guy who lays my hands on people and they receive the Holy Spirit? Now, when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, watch this. Look what Peter says, verse 20. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor, here's the word, lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Can the gospel message be purchased with money? Is, are, are those the ethics by which gospel ministry, the engine of gospel ministry goes forward? What do you think? Can you have both, why don't you come in here, we'll give you $20, and you can come in and hear the gospel message? Is that how gospel ministry works? And Peter says, no, you've got no part in our ministry. Paul is gonna, is gonna talk about this later on in this book, about false apostles who don't work on the same terms that he does. Now, come back to Second Corinthians. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What's the answer? Say none. None. How about light and dark? None. How about righteousness and lawlessness? None. So he just keeps hammering and hammering and hammering. Now watch what he goes. Verse 16. What agreement has a temple with a temple of God with idols? What's the answer? None, you don't wear, uh, now I'm not, I grew up, uh, I went to Penn State, and Penn State, our rivals were Ohio State and Michigan. Uh, You don't wear Ohio State colors to a Penn State blue and white football game, right? Why? Because you're in our house. You're in our temple. We are Penn State. We are going for this end zone. You are not going for that end zone, you are going for that end zone. We are fundamentally and diametrically opposed you with me? Clemson, USC. Is that better? Does that work? Who's the Citadel's rival? Who is it? VMI? VMI. VMI. Citadel Bulldog and the vimes. What are they? Cadets. That's right. the cadets. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? This is a major problem in 1 Corinthians where we have all of these Christians going to these idol temples, sacrificing food to the uh, false gods. And Paul has to say, you are sacrificing to demons. You are going into a place that does not worship God, but worships demons. Hey, Christians, you can't do that. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, he's moving from these rhetorical categories, light and dark, righteousness, lawlessness, all that. Now he's moving into worship realities, isn't he? He's coming into the practices of the church. But he's not talking about out there. He's talking about us in here, isn't he? He says this church has a problem. This church has a worship problem. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For and here's, watch this. For we are the temple of the living God. Now, Paul, again, he takes an Old Testament picture of unequally yoked, two animals. He takes another Old Testament picture of the temple. The temple was the singular greatest place in the life of Old Testament Israelite worship. When the temple was built and the presence of God comes down, when the tabernacle was built with Moses and the presence of God comes down, it's called the tent of meeting. And the entire um, um, national identity of the people of God is informed by God being in their midst. The way we set up camp, the way we travel, the way we organize, the people who have jobs are all find their meaning in relationship to God being in their midst. When Solomon builds the temple, the entire priestly order sets the Ark of the Covenant in the temple Solomon builds, the presence of God comes down, nobody can work because God has showed up in the temple. And what Paul is saying is he's taking this Old Testament Israelite imagery and applying it to the New Testament church. Which means when Paul says we are the temple, he doesn't say the church building is the temple. He doesn't say where you meet is the temple. He says, watch this, we are the temple. Now, what is happening? Watch this. In Paul's argument, what Paul is talking about are false teachers who come in with a false gospel that compromises Paul's influence among them. And Paul, here's what Paul says. Paul says the temple of your life The things that you believe and value and worship, the center of who you are, you are viewed as the very temple of God. He's already said that God has given us a down payment and a guarantee of all the promises God will fulfill because of the spirit that lives within us. So now we, as God's temple, aren't so much worried about where we worship, but we're worried about what the core of our life is. Is the core of my life dedicated to worshiping God on God's terms? Or is the core of my life dedicated to a false gospel? Now, why is Paul? Do you you see why Paul is rightly emotionally engaged? Do you see how important this is to Paul? He's, we are the very temple of the living God. The same phrase he used about the living God was back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where he says, you're a letter written by us by the spirit of the living God. Here he says, you're a very temple of the living God, that God dwells within you. He's given you of his spirit to know him and to live with him and to be intimate in relationship with him. Now, now this has applications for the church corporately, does it not? It has implications for the kind of preaching that comes out of the pulpit that feeds the people of God and encourages the people of God and reminds the people of God of who God is, what God has done, and who God says we are, right? That's why we come together and we sing these songs, right? Right? That's why we come together and we hear God's word preached. That's why we come together and we worship, looking away from ourselves, and we worship a God who loves us and gave his son for us and calls us into relationship, not because of what we have done, but because of his mercy and grace. Amen? That's why you attend church. You don't come to attend church to hear six reasons about how you can make your way to God. You come to church to hear about God who made his way to you. Now, the danger for this church is that they would welcome false teaching into the very center of their lives. And what Paul is about to do is give you a flurry of Old Testament passages. We don't have time to turn to them all. In fact, they, they are uh, hints and aromas all throughout the Old Testament of both the law and the prophets where Paul is about to prove this point. Of us being the very temple of God. And the temple of God ought to be clean. It ought to be pure. It ought to be dedicated to God. Look at the remainder of the verse. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said. Now don't miss that. That's three little words that are going to be very, very important for our time as we close here today. As God has said, Paul is now moving from qualitative, logical differences, illustrating for you that you're right. Righteousness and lawlessness don't have any uh, relationship. Christ and Satan don't have any overlap. Light, dark, don't have any overlap. But now what Paul is going to do to counsel this church who recognizes that they have a uh, worship disorder a disorder in the life of the church that compromises their pure worship of God through the gospel that Paul has preached, now Paul is going to give them things that God has said and things that God has done and things about who they are. Note all the I wills as we go through this. We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. If you have a cross-reference, it looks at Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 verse 1 talks about refusing to bow to idols. Both Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 are the places in the Old Testament that talk about blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And it's founded on the statement that Moses makes in Leviticus 26 1 and 2 about the church, I'm sorry, the people of Israel, leaving idolatry and reverencing the sanctuary. And in 26.12, it's the center of the chapter. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, but right in the middle of the chapter is this. Right in the middle of the chapter, Paul quotes this passage. As if to say, an obedient life and a disobedient life are balanced and determined by the fulcrum of your life. You know what the fulcrum is? You know what the seesaw? The middle of the, of the board. It's the pivot around everything else that rotates. And Paul says, I will make my dwelling and walk among them. Three promises in one verse. One, I'm going to come and live with you. Two, I'm going to walk among you. Three, I'm going to be your God. That the fulcrum of your life, the center of your life, ought to be the promise that God has chosen to draw near to us and to dwell among us. Isn't that good news? That we didn't do anything to find God, but God came and said, hey, I'm gonna come down. I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna take up residence in the middle of your life. Look at verse 17. So in context, how should this church respond to false teachers that are in their midst knowing that God is among them? shouldn't that fuel a certain kind of response to false teaching that shows up in the church? If me and God are walking in the cool of the day, like in Genesis chapter 2, shouldn't that affect how I treat the snake? It ought to. That's Paul's point. Look at verse 17. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. Now this is a quote from Isaiah, and in Isaiah... Chapter 52, the people are in captivity in Babylon, and what happens for the people in Babylon is that they begin to live among the city of Babylon, and they pick up the culture and the practices and the preferences of the culture in which they live. And both pre-exile, Leviticus chapter 26, when God calls his people to himself, they fail, they go into exile, Isaiah 52, God calls his people back out again. He says, don't touch anything, come on back to me. And what will God's promise be to them as they leave Babylon and they come back into the national identity of being the people of Israel. I will what? I'll welcome you. Isn't that great? I'll welcome you. Now in context, what should the Corinthian church do? Leave the false teachers. Come back to God and what's God going to do? Open his arms. It gets better. So you begin with an identity statement. You're the temple. You ought to be solely dedicated to the worship of the one true God, the God, the maker of heaven and earth, right? Number two, you've got a promise of relational intimacy. I'll walk with you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. We'll be on good terms. Now, what you need to do in the middle is not stop doing something or start doing something, but to leave someone, right? Leave listening to the people who preach to you a message that is not the message of the one true God. Leave the people who compromise your affections for Paul, who brought you the apostolic message of grace. Leave the people who are preaching you a message that does not result in your reconciliation with God. Stop listening. Verse 18. Touch no unclean, I'm sorry, 17, touch no unclean thing and I will welcome you and I will be a, watch this, a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now we've moved from an architectural example of a temple being built, right? Pure worship of God, the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. Now to the end, we have a familial relationship. Isn't that how Paul started? I speak as to children, Paul says, I've become your spiritual father. You're leaving the very message of God who has called you not out of bondage and into family. Sorry, he's called you out of bondage and into family where he's not only your God, but he's your father. You are my sons and my daughters. I love you. I care for you. I've fought for you. I've redeemed you. I've brought you to myself. You shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. <clears throat> now, that's how Paul closes chapter six. And before we get to verse one, I want to talk about something that is, uh, there's a little bit of a temptation in this passage. This passage is not an easy passage. The application when you read a passage like this is to, is to kind of do this, is to go, yeah, we got to look out for those false teachers. Where are they? let's get them and that's not i mean i guess that's not a bad false teaching bad healthy teaching good right no but the temptation in a passage like this why why do we start why do we sing songs like make my heart believe why do we sing songs like who you say i am because when Paul gives you these scriptures, Paul is showing you that he understands the conflict. Because for you to understand what is going on in your heart at the deepest level of who you are, you have to get kind of behind, you got to kind of play Jeopardy with this passage. Remember, you know Jeopardy? That they give you the answer, but they want you to figure out the question. And you have this flurry of Old Testament passages that talk about God's intentional pursuit of his people, God's people leaving the false teaching, God's people being brought into relationship with himself. So the, the thing we need to wrestle with is, well, why is false teaching so powerful? If this is the answer, what is the question if these are the truths, I'll put it a different way. If these are the truths, then what are the lies that we are prone to believe? Right? You know the, the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. I just want to read it to you and get your mind thinking on this. In 2 Timothy Chapter four, Paul, Second Timothy four, verse one, Paul says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, blah 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 blah. And then he says, the blah 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 is in the Greek. You gotta <sighs> Then he says this, Second Timothy four, verse three, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Myths is the Greek word, M-U-T-H-O-S, and it means story. That they will wander off into stories that are not true. Here's the thing. When you look at this passage, the danger is certainly false teaching in the life of the church. But the question I want us to wrestle with is, why is false teaching so attractive? Why is false teaching so powerful? And here's the reason, I think. Because I look at the, re- the answers that Paul gives, I have to reckon with something that is happening in me at the level of kind of who I am. I have to wrestle with the conflict that exists in my heart. And one of the things I recognize about walking with Christ and being a Christian for a while is that the greatest uh, battles of my life, the greatest battles, and most significant temptations I face happen at the level of my identity. They don't happen so much for me at the level of do good things and then do bad things. Ah, but I fell and I did a bad thing. The most powerful temptations I face, and I think you'd find this to be true, are that we have a tendency to tell ourselves stories that are not true. And what 2 Timothy 4 and what this passage shows us is that we love to have false teachers tell us a false gospel because it tells us something about ourselves we want so badly to be true. You live your life, and I will, I, we, I'll maybe put this because I, boy, I do this too. I live my life telling myself stories. And I encounter situations. And when I encounter situations that don't fit the gospel story I'm telling myself. Now, let me, let me draw a contrast. I tell myself a gospel story all the time. I paint a picture of good news. And the good news is that if I work hard and achieve a lot, I will therefore be justified. Now, I know that's not just me because there are lots of ways in which people preach a gospel to themselves. You operate with a gospel identity problem all the time in your life. And when I discover this gospel identity problem taking root and I find that life doesn't fit my gospel message, then I get confronted with the fact that this powerful gospel message that I have been believing is now at odds with the true gospel. Let me, let me illustrate it. If I'm physically attractive, I there, my life, therefore, has purpose and meaning and importance. That's a gospel truth, a gospel message that is preached in your heart. If I am married, I will then be fulfilled and have purpose and design to my life. If I am unmarried, I will then have purpose, meaning, and fulfillment in my life. If I'm wealthy, I will be successful and advance in my career. And therefore, the gospel story I'm telling myself depends upon what I accomplish in my career. And if my career is on the rise, my self-identity, my self-expression, my certainty about my life is on the up. But when I face a hiccup in my career, my life is over. My life is dismal. My life is destroyed. Why? Because I have been weaving a gospel message together in my life. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy. They're seeking for teachers to suit their own passions. If I'm the boss, I have identity, I have meaning, I have purpose. Not if I serve somebody. If I'm influential, then my life has meaning and purpose. Do you see where I'm going? We are telling ourselves gospel messages all the time that consistently have to be reoriented. They have to be changed. They have to be resurrected from a false gospel to a true gospel. Now, how do we get there? How do I know if the real true gospel is reforming my heart? And the answer are in the truths that Paul has already given us. Let me just list some of the things that show us what has happened in this gospel message that Paul is preaching to these Corinthian church. I will make my dwelling among them. See, in Christ, God chooses to draw near to us, doesn't he? That when Christ begins his ministry and steps into the water and John gets ready to baptize him and John says... I don't need to baptize you, you need to baptize me. And Jesus said, let this be done so that to fulfill all righteousness. Who's Jesus standing in the water with? Repentant sinners. So that Jesus would identify with us. He would draw near, he would be God with us. I will be their God and they will be my people that God chooses to bring us into relationship with himself based solely not on what we have done but on what he has done through Jesus for us. That they will be sons and daughters and I will be their father. That now I receive a new relationship with God. Where I am now known and loved. When Jesus rises from the dead and tells Mary uh, who's standing at the tomb, go and tell my brothers I am ascending to my God and to their God. That you are now a part of the family. See, it's only Christ and the gospel message that God gives us through what Jesus has done that allows us to these false gospel stories we tell ourselves to crumble. Because otherwise, what we're going to do when we gather together is to say, we're the people who have it together. We're the people who try hard. We're the people who work hard. We're the people who are sufficient in and of ourselves. We're the people who have the most money. So therefore, we are welcomed and accepted by God. Is that how God works? It's just like Paul, uh, Peter, and Simon. We operate on two different planes. So here's Paul's final exhortation, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Since therefore we have these what? Promises, Promises. what is the center of your life? What you say about you or what God says about you? Does the temple of your life reflect God has chosen to draw near to me. God has chosen to love me. Jesus has chosen to die for me. I am now in the family of God that I can lay claim what John 1 says to all who received him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Does that live in your heart? Or are you always working? Are you always trying to prove it? Since we have these promises, what's the next word? beloved. Isn't that great? Paul says, I love you. God loves you. You are loved by God. And we have these promises from a God who loves us. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You know what holiness is? It's not let's grow in our sanctification process. It's grow in our separateness from false teachers. Church, if we don't hold To the gospel message of Jesus Christ. If we don't hold to justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, through his blood alone, our church will be gone in a generation. Gone. This is Paul's warning. Let us bring, you know, holiness doesn't mean progressive Christian growth, it means separateness. Now apply it to the context. It doesn't mean we stop being friends with unbelievers. It doesn't mean I can't work with unbelievers or shop with unbelievers. That's not the point. The point is, we don't hold to any other message. We don't have the same message as the Mormons, the Hindus, the Latter-day Saints, the Buddhists, or the Muslims, do we? You got one different message. We can cohabitate and have lots of conversations about a lot of different things until you start talking about God, man, sin, redemption, Christ, future, There's no, we start to get, we diverge at that point. We can work together, we can have relationships, but when you start stepping into the things that make the people of God unique and distinct, that is, that God walks among them, that Jesus has died for them, that Jesus was raised from the dead, and Jesus has brought them into the family of God, you got the only message in town. You with me? That's why this is so dangerous, and that's why this is so important for you. That's why it's so important for Steve. Because at the center of my life is the worship war about whether or not I will believe the true gospel about what God says about me or I will believe what I say about me, what my parents say about me, what my circumstances say about me, what my friends say about me, what my spouse says about me. And there is no cohabitation between God and idols. Amen? Father, we... Desire to present to you hearts of obedience and hearts of wisdom and hearts that are purely devoted to your word. Father, would you speak into the conflict that exists in my heart this morning and exists in the hearts and minds of people here who feel the temptation to justify ourselves by anything other than the blood of Christ and what he has done for us? Father, we give you thanks for your word. Would you change us and would you shape us? Would again, we experience the truth of God speaking into our lives and laying hold of by faith the things that you say about us, that you are, or we are, who you say we are. So Father, we lay hold of those things by faith even when we don't feel them. And I pray that the truth of your love for us the truth that you want to be with us, the truth that you forgive our sins, the truth that we are able to call upon you as a good father and we as your sons and daughters through faith in what Jesus has done. We give thanks for that. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.